As we go to the Word this morning, you can open your Bibles with me to Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, and we're going to be looking at an extensive passage this morning. Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 3. Three verses. Um, Next weekend, we will break out in the full joyfulness of Christmas. We're going to celebrate next weekend with brothers and sisters, with friends and family at church, at Christmas gatherings, the grand and glorious reality of Jesus, Emmanuel, of God with us, and all that entails. This weekend, as I've prepared the sermon for this week, I've, I've done so with a sense that today our celebration is somewhat muted. As we, as we grieve Diane's passing. Our hope in Christ has not been shaken. The joy of Christmas is not removed. But our joy is colored with sorrow. Our celebration is shaded to some degree with grief. In a way, though, I would, I would argue that in some ways, grief prepares us to receive the hope of Christ at Christmas in a way that perhaps we would not be able to otherwise. The hope of Christmas, of the coming of the Savior, is not the hope of the coming of light into a bright world, but the hope of the coming of light into a dark world. Christ did not come to us because everything was okay. Christ came to us because we are deeply in need. because our sin had separated us from God, because our sin had brought upon us the curse of death, because our sin had come between us and our neighbors. Christ came to us in our need, in our weakness. And so we come to the word of God this morning poignantly aware of our need, of our weakness, even physical frailty. We come to the word of God and to Christmas this morning aware of the weight of loss, of the reality of death, of the darkness of the curse of sin which rests upon this world. We come this morning, in other words, in need of a Savior. And we come in need of one who is sensitive to the wounds of our soul and to the weakness of our faith. And that's why I think Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 3, is the perfect passage for us this morning. These verses, and particularly verse 3, which is basically where we're going to live. This is a sermon on Isaiah 42, verse 3. These are words of great comfort for broken people. And what I pray that God will do among us this morning as we attend to these verses is that these words would reveal to us the very heart of Christ. The tenderness of Christ as he deals gently with weak and broken people. Our main idea this morning is this. Jesus deals tenderly with his people in their weakness. Um, And the reason why this is my prayer is because this 
this aim, that we would actually encounter something of the heart of Christ, is not something I can accomplish. It's not something we can accomplish. It's something that God must do as we come to his word in all its power and as we seek his spirit and his presence. And so we're going to read the passage together and then we're going to pray. Because if, if what I want to happen is going to happen, that is each of us encounter personally the tenderness of Jesus in our weakness and need God will have to show up. And that's why we pray. Let's read the passage together and then we'll, we'll pray. Isaiah 42, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of God. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would come to us now and that you would minister to us the hope and heart of Jesus Christ. By the power of your word and the presence of your spirit, be at work, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 3, shows us Jesus. This is Jesus. This is the same Jesus we find in the manger on Christmas. But Isaiah is revealing him to us long years before he came. Verse 9, a little bit later, tells us, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Isaiah, as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit, is, is speaking about a Savior, a Messiah who is to come. Now, we've, we've already seen Isaiah say something about this Messiah. We've seen, for example, in Isaiah 11, how this Messiah, this Savior to come, this Jesus we find in the manger, came as a great and righteous king, a powerful king to powerfully bring in the kingdom of God. And that's one of the overriding it's one of the overarching metaphors or pictures that Isaiah gives us of the Messiah is a king, a righteous ruler. But the other picture that Isaiah gives us as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit of Jesus and who he will be is of the suffering servant. A servant. That Jesus came with all the glory of the king, of a king, and also at the same time, in the same person, all the humility of a servant. Verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Here's the chosen one, the chosen deliverer and savior. And God says, look, right? Verse 1. Behold, look, here he is. And what do we see when we look? 
Verse 2. In some ways, this is unexpected. Verse 2. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. According to Matthew 12, these words are fulfilled in the quietness of Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus taught and healed and ministered in relative obscurity. He was not welcomed by kings. He was not ushered into the temple with trumpet fanfare. He was not received by the great ones of this world and parades. And this was on purpose. In Matthew 12 and verse 16, we're told that after healing many people, Jesus ordered them not to make him known. Jesus didn't come for the fanfare. Isaiah goes on. And in verse 3, he tells us about this Jesus and something about his heart. And this, again, is where we're going to focus and zoom in on. Verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Two pictures. A bruised reed and a faintly burning wick. Two pictures of weakness. A weak thing broken and a weak thing struggling. There's a very famous book written on this verse and on these two images by a Puritan writer, Richard Sibbs. It's a good book. I've spent a lot of time in that book this past week. I'm indebted to his work in this sermon. I'm crediting him here. If I, if I quote him directly, I'll let you know. Two images. A bruised reed and a faintly burning wick. First, we'll look at the reed, a bruised reed. The word here for reed is broad. In the original language, it refers to any number of long grasses. Talking about swamp grass. The thing about grass is that it's weak. Um, it's not that strong. And a bruised reed, a bent reed, is now not only weak, it's also wounded. And what we're told about Jesus is what he won't do with a bruised reed. He won't break it. A bruised reed, this weakest wounded thing, he will not break. Very often in Scripture, the coming of the Messiah is pictured as being a thing of great power, of great might, right? Thunderclouds and judgment and fierce fire against evil. And that's an accurate picture, right? A, a true representation of how Christ will one day deal in his second coming with all the forces of darkness. But according to Isaiah, it is not how Christ deals with the bruised reeds of this world. With the weak and the wounded, he is kind. He deals mercifully. As the mighty king stomps out the fires of sin and darkness, he will not crush the weak. In his work of rooting out and chopping down the choking thorns of sin, the bruised reed, according to Isaiah, will not be broken. 
Jesus deals tenderly with his people in their weakness. In fact, it's actually for the weak that he came. We see this one facet of this truth on display in Mark 2. Mark 2, we read about how Jesus was eating with all sorts of sinners, tax collectors. He was hanging out with the wrong crowd, druggies and prostitutes, and all the church people piled on. And they accused him of low standards, right? Jesus, you're, what are you doing, right? Eating with all these sinners. If you were a prophet, why would you do that? This is what Jesus told them in Mark 2 and verse 17. He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, Jesus is not saying here that there's some category of righteous people who don't need saving. That's not what he's getting at. All have sinned. Scriptures teach us that none is righteous. All of us stand in need of the salvation of Jesus Christ. What Jesus is getting at is that some people pretend they don't need saving. Some people like to pretend they've got it all together. That's Pharisees, the leaders here, the church people that Jesus is addressing. Some people like to think they have no need of salvation. And to that kind of person, Jesus, who came for sinners, will always be a stumbling block. Why would you need a savior if you have no need of saving? Jesus did not come for people who need no savior. He came not for the so-called righteous, but for sinners. This is why I think Jesus says what he says in Matthew 5. Very famous words, beginning in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, the humble for they shall inherit the earth. The humble, the poor, the mourning, the meek are blessed, according to Jesus. I think the reason Jesus blesses them in this way is because it's the humble, the poor, the mourning, and the meek that can see most clearly their need and throw themselves most fully on the mercies of their Savior. Unless we come to Christ in weakness, we cannot come to Christ. We would not. We will not. We must be brought to meekness if we are to inherit the earth. We must mourn if we are to be comforted. We must become poor in spirit if we are to have the kingdom. And so this is the bittersweet blessing bestowed by God on the poor, the mourning, and the meek. If, if we're groaning this week under sin and shame, or under the weight of a great loss, or if you're heavy this week with, with the weight of your weakness and need, whatever that might look like, you're actually blessed. 
you're actually in the one place where you can be most receptive, most open, most ready to pursue and be pursued by the healing power of Jesus Christ. Sibs, the writer I referred to, says it this way. He says, Christ's way is first to wound, then to heal. And then this is, listen to this. No sound whole soul shall ever enter into heaven. This is why when Jesus invited people to come to himself, he said it like this, Matthew eleven twenty-eight. 28. I quote this all the time. Come to me, Jesus says. Come to me, all who have it figured out. Come to me, all who are whole. Come to me, all who are fresh and ready to go. That's not what he says. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. John 7, verse 37 if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus' invitation doesn't go to the full and the rested. It goes to the hungry, to the thirsty, to the weary, because only the hungry, thirsty, and weary will be willing to accept the gift of food and drink and rest. It's actually our weakness which qualifies us in a strange sense, to receive his strength. As the lyric of that great hymn proclaims, all the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. So I'd want, I want us to see this morning that if, if you feel this morning like a bruised reed, if you are very aware of your weakness, of your wounds, of your sin and of your sorrow, you are actually just where you need to be. It is far better to be weak and to know it than to be weak and to believe oneself strong. Our weakness and our wounds, though perhaps bitter, are in fact gifts, bittersweet gifts, which open us up to receive the strength of Christ. Think about the man born blind. We're told about him in John chapter 9. Did that man wake up the morning before he was healed, believing that he was blessed? Did he go out singing that, I'm so blessed, I'm so blessed? No. Every voice around him would have told him, no, blindness is a sign that you've been cursed. Probably your parents did something wrong. That's why you were born blind. Blessed are the blind Who says that? And yet when Jesus opened his eyes, his blindness actually became his way of seeing things clearly, more clearly than anyone else could. As the crowd surrounded this miraculous sign. If you read John 9, you realize the crowds weren't sure what to make of this. should Should we believe Jesus? Like what? Is Jesus the Savior? Does this mean he's the Messiah? And a lot of people were saying, no, 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 we can't believe that. The one guy with absolute certainty was the blind man. The one man who could see most clearly is the blind man. And as he said to the Pharisees as they they questioned him, right? All I know is this. 
I was blind and now I can see. Blessed are the blind, for they shall see. In Matthew chapter 9, a ruler came to Jesus, a ruler of the people, and no one would have called him blessed that morning because he was grieving the death of his daughter. And the mourning and wailing crowds were surrounding his house, and he broke out and found Jesus. Blessed are those who mourn. Would he have felt that that morning? I'm not so sure. But his grief led him to run to Jesus. And Jesus comforted him by taking his daughter by the hand and raising her from the dead. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are they that mourn, for they will run to Jesus. We're thinking about the prodigal son. We're probably all familiar with this story, right? Prodigal son kind of a jerk to his dad. He says, I want the whole inheritance. I don't want you as my father anymore. I want to run away. I want all the money. I wish you were dead. Let me go. His dad says, fine, go. Gives him his inheritance. He goes off and he squanders it all on lottery tickets and women and finds himself at the end in a pigsty, right? He's eating the pig food that he's been hired to, to feed to these pigs Blessed are the poor in spirit. Is that what he felt in that moment, do you think? Blessed are the humble, the humiliated. Sure doesn't feel like it, does it? But his humiliation led him home. He wasn't actually willing to go until he hit the bottom. He, wasn't, he, he left home proud in spirit, running away from his father. And he didn't run home until he became poor in spirit. His weakness led him home to a merciful father who eagerly welcomed him, running out to embrace him in his arms. Rarely do we feel blessed in our moments of greatest weakness, but Jesus says we are. Blessed are the poor in spirit because it is to the weak and wounded that Jesus came. It is the bruised reed he will not break. I'd want to emphasize two applications at this point. One is that uh, you may be here and, and the talk about weakness and need is not interesting to you. Say, that's not really my experience of God. Uh, maybe you come this morning and you have some sense maybe that you're a Christian. Or maybe you don't. But you're not really interested in enter entering into a relationship with God in which you're dependent on him. All the talk about sin and forgiveness and you say, I'm not sure I actually have anything to repent of. I'm not sure I really need God. If that's you, I'd want to encourage you that you cannot see. You are blind to your need. If that's your attitude, you're certainly not a Christian. Because the 
entrance into the Christian life is the call to repent and believe, to see our sin and our need to turn and our need for forgiveness and our need for new life. And it's not just the entry point. That's, the, that's meant to be the continual draw of the Christian life. If, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian and you feel like your prayer life is dry, you realize at the end of a week that you really haven't had a real intimate time of prayer with the Lord. Or you get to the end of the week and you realize, looking back, you've actually been pretty inconsistent with your scripture reading. And the times that you've been in the word of God, it's just been kind of dry and formulaic. And it doesn't feel like it's really touched your heart. If that's where you are, I'd want you to consider that perhaps, Christian, you have forgotten how much you need God. That you have lost sight to some degree of your weakness. And it's actually the mercy of God that in our times of, of trial, of difficulty, of grief, of pain, it's very often those times that the Lord draws us back to show us just how deeply we need him. And of course, that's not just true in those times of of, of special trial, right? It's true all the time. And so a good first step to reigniting our, our prayer life or our time in the word of God is just to go to God and say, Lord, help me to see how much I need you. Second application I'd want us to see at this point um, is just a note of comfort for those for those souls which are especially tender to their own sin. Um, and I put out this application, especially thinking of my sister Diane, who is no longer sitting in her seat, who is with the Lord, and who at some point early on in the time that I was here at the church, we had a conversation, I think it was in the context of a Gospel 101 group, maybe some of you were there, um, where Diane was pouring out her heart about her sense of sin, that she was a great sinner. Now, of, of anyone in this room, Diane probably was the last one you would point to and say, look, a great sinner. But her heart was tender to the Spirit of God, and she knew her own sin. And she struggled to believe that God could forgive her. That, she, that, she, that after her sin, she could really be reconciled to God. And my, my comfort and encouragement to her was, Diane, that's exactly where God wants you. Not questioning your salvation, but tender to sin. This is, you're the one who Jesus, you're just the one whom Jesus came to save. Um, and so I'd want to encourage you, if you're in a position where you feel so weighed down by your sin that you wonder, could God ever possibly save you? I'd want you to see, God came to, Christ came to save sinners. You're exactly the one he came to save. His heart is drawn to you. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Second picture. 
Sibs, in his treatment of this verse, identifies the burning wick as a slightly different kind of weak soul than the bruised reed. That the bruised reed is a weak soul wounded, and the faintly burning wick is a weak soul struggling, barely alive, smoking and smoldering as the oil in the lamp is almost dry. The picture is not of a candle so much as of an oil lamp. The impulse with the faintly burning wick is to quench it, right? It's filling up the room with smoke. It's not a clean fire, right? Let's get rid of that. But Christ does not quench the Christian who is burning faintly. He helps and encourages them. Think, for example, of Mark chapter 9. A man came to Jesus whose child was demon-possessed, and he came begging that Jesus would do something. Mark 9, verse 22, If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. Is a picture of a man longing to experience the salvation of Jesus, longing to be a person of faith, and yet struggling with some niggling doubt, something in his heart holding him back. I'd want to encourage you this morning that maybe you're in that position. Maybe, like this man, you long for the help and salvation, the power of Jesus, but you hesitate. You believe, and yet you doubt. I'd want to encourage you not to let that niggling question, that niggling doubt, keep you from coming to Jesus. He doesn't turn away people with imperfect faith. Thank goodness. Go to him, run to him, pray to him, and lay your heart before him, doubts and all. I believe. Help my unbelief. It's just a good rule generally. Don't hold anything back from him. He can handle whatever you have to throw at him. And what did Jesus do with this man who came believing and doubting? He did not quench this spark of faith. He answered the father and he healed the son. This is what Christ does with those who come to him, even struggling in their faith. What about the Christian who's in sin? What about the Christian who believes and desires to follow but struggles with some indwelling sin which holds, holds on and drags them down to the depths? What if you find yourself in a pit of your own digging? When you cry out to God for help, will he hear you? The prophet Jonah found out, didn't he? He ran from God. He ran from his calling. He found himself tossed by a great storm, swallowed by a great fish, and dragged down to the depths of darkness. And only there, when God had humbled him, did he cry out. There he turned to God. Did God hear Jonah's voice? Amen. Jonah 2, verse 2. The words of Jonah. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me 
Out of the belly of Sheol, out of the belly of hell, he says, I cried and you heard my voice. God does not quench the struggling, faintly burning wick. In the first few chapters of uh, the revelation that was given to John, we have letters that were written to Christians by Jesus, a number of churches, and most of them were messed up. By the way, if anyone says, we need to be like the first century church, like we need to be perfect like the first century church was, right? open your Bible. <laughs> they had problems too. Um, and, and the churches that Christ is addressing in Revelation certainly did. And he has warnings for them. He warns them about what will happen if they continue on the path that they're going down as they're dabbling in sin or growing lukewarm in their love. But then he always ends with an invitation back to himself. He never leaves them without hope. For example, to the church in Laodicea, Jesus' warning is that this church was lukewarm, that they were neither hot nor cold. They, haven't, they hadn't devoted themselves entirely to Jesus. And Jesus invited them in these words. He says this, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. He's calling them back to himself. Sometimes when a Christian is struggling, struggling in their faith, um, a well-meaning but misguided Christian or pastor will pile on the guilt and push them away. As if beating oneself up is the way to sanctification. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus' invitation is always back to himself. He does not chase away people struggling in their faith. The answer for the struggling Christian, whatever the struggle may be, whether that's doubt, whether that's sin, is not less Jesus, it's more Jesus. The answer for the doubting Christian is not less of Christ's presence, but more. The answer to the Christian struggling with sin is not less fellowship with the people of God, but more. Listen then to the invitation of Jesus in John 15 and verse 4, where Christ says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If you are poignantly aware of your weakness, go to Jesus. It's correct that you can do nothing without him. Run to him and bear much fruit. 
in your weakness, in your brokenness, in your sin, in your need, Christ does not push his people away. Jesus deals tenderly with his people in their weakness. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. So isn't it fitting then, in light of all of that, that when Christ came into the world, he did not come in a golden chariot. He did not come with a great army, by power and by might, but as an infant child. Isn't it fitting that in Christ's quest to save the weak, he himself became weak? In his mission to lift up the humble, he humbled himself and came not to the great, but to the humble, born of a humble girl, born to exalt those of humble estate. And it's the words of this humble girl, this Mary, that have been enshrined as one of the first celebrations of the coming of Christ as her God was dwelling in her womb. She praised God in these words from Luke 1 and verse 46. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted who? Those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. Christ came and humbled himself to the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And then as Philippians 2 tells us, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He, the author of life, could go no further in humbling himself than he did all the way down, even to death, being broken and bruised for our sake. Isaiah 53, 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. This is God's servant. This is the Messiah, the King. This is Jesus Christ. Do you know him? A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, as we seek to love and follow you and to order our lives around your word, around your mission in this Christmas season, we ask, Lord, that you would meet us in our weakness, in our sin, in our grief, in our brokenness, in our rebellion, in our doubts. Lord, that you would meet us, that you would heal us, that you would show us your love, 
that you would change us and forgive us, that you would bind up the wounded, that you would convict the proud, that you would lift up the brokenhearted, that you would comfort the, shame, the ashamed. Lord, that you would bring us into your presence. And Lord Jesus, that you would be glorified in our hearts this Christmas season as we find everything we need in our weakness in the strength of Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing as we close the service. Forgive me. You can remain standing, uh, but we have uh, a significant omission here. We have neg I have neglected to have the Advent candles lit. So Aiden, could you come forward? countdown to Christmas. The light, oh. Today's the third Sunday in Advent, so we'll light three candles. We'll light the fourth next Sunday morning, and the fifth, the Christ candle at Christmas Eve. With much to celebrate, let's praise the Lord. Praise God from whom.